Well, welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris, and we're uh, we're privileged to be here at a special uh, on-location episode, or epi- new episode. Episode is the right word, yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> we're here at Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, where we've been running the Mission of God Canada Conference today, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron is the pastor at Harvest Windsor, this uh, our host church. He's a fellow of the Ezra Institute. He should be no stranger to regular listeners, and it's a privilege to uh, to be here today with you, Aaron. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. We've had a great conference. We're just sort of winding it down now, but uh, we had about five hundred people come and from different churches, and uh, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to be able to minister alongside uh, Dr. Boot and Andre Schutten, and I, I think that the Lord definitely was glorified, and our people were informed today, so it makes it all worthwhile. No, I think so too. We just uh, just concluded a pretty active and lively Q and A, and found uh, you know a lot a lot of the audience were very engaged, very uh, very keen on uh, the subject matter, and had a lot of relevant questions uh, yeah, about it. For sure. And for those of you who uh, who haven't been tracking with it, that subject matter is the theme of uh, environmentalism, and specifically, we deal with uh, we've dealt with today the idea of religious environmentalism. And Aaron, what I what I wanted to uh, connect with you about is what why why did you decide that this yeah this was an event that that you wanted to host, put resources towards, put your your own time and effort into? What is it about the in the contemporary environmental movement that you thought this this needs this level of response? Well, I, I am super thankful for the ministry of the Ezra Institute as it helps Christians think through some of the here and now challenges that we're facing in our culture. I don't think there's very many informed Christians that would deny that our culture is in a mess, that there's been um, a radical movement uh, away from God, that it's no longer a post-Christian culture. It's really an anti-Christian culture, and that's affecting people and we care about people's eternal state. We want people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also want to speak truth into the here and now, and we want to alleviate suffering, and we want to speak out against injustice, as our Lord has called us to. So on a broad level, that's why I was delighted at the prospect of hosting this Ezra event. More specifically to the climate agenda, we do want our people to be good stewards of God's creation, and that includes in our response to all of the resources that he has entrusted to our care, be it our our livestock, our lands, our physical resources, our children, our ministry stewardships. We, We are stewards, we're not owners, and ownership is the enemy of stewardship. So we believe in good stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted to us. And Christians should be on the forefront of demonstrating their commitment to stewarding what God owns. But in the whole climate agenda that we're hearing about almost every single day from our prime minister and and other officials are multiple religious aspects And so we wanted to help people to see those, to sort of spot the lies in the narrative that they're constantly exposed to, and to be able to intelligently address those issues. Right, I appreciate that. Excuse me. 
one one of the one of the passages that Christians will often refer to when we're talking about uh, issues related to the environment or climate and the the Christian response uh, is in Genesis one, what's often called the Dominion mandate uh, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And I guess one of the one of the counters to that from people who may be familiar with the Bible, but coming at it from a, a different perspective than you or I would, is that, you know, that uh, that commandment, that mandate was given when the earth had a population of two. Right. Uh, and I think, uh, I think just recently we've officially crossed into the eight billion uh, mark. It has that, has that commandment, has that mandate been been abrogated? Is there a cutoff point? Uh, if, should does it look different now than it to, than it did at creation? Well, the dominion mandate is to be fruitful and multiply. So it is not just contextual to Adam and Eve. It is to multiply. So one would expect then that over time, as couples have children and they produce new couples, new families, that the world's population is going to expand, and it and it has. And it is there are there are more people on the planet today than ever before, but the narrative that we often hear. So to, to answer your question straightforwardly, no, there's no caveat, there's no footnote, there's no indication in Scripture that when, when you get to a certain level, that God's like, "Whoa, you're get you're getting a little ahead of me here." I only intended there to be five billion. Mm-hmm. If that was God's intention, he he would do His work to thin us out, so to speak, right? Because right. He is responsible for for life and death. So no, there's no caveat in Scripture. There's no footnote that says when you get to a certain number, you got to hit the brakes. If anything, we're entering into an era where the opposite is true. A population, especially in Western nations, is dramatically on the decline. We've moved from 100 or so years ago from women having an average of over seven children to having less than two. We're not even replacing ourselves. This obviously is going to put strain on uh, the elderly population who rely upon the tax base for the younger population to support them. It's going to reduce our workforce. There's all sorts of catastrophic consequences that I do believe we're going to see in our country as uh, global populations are on the decline. But the the commandment stands, and yet the radical environmentalists who are n- who are not just about correcting pollution or fixing animal abuse or increasing soil fertility. That's not what they're about. They are promoting an agenda that puts man at the center of his own fate without surrender and submission to God. Mm. Instead of repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ and learning what it means to be a steward and cultivator of the earth, we're supposed to repent to the earth itself as if it is our God. There's an attempt to reduce the population because humanity is not an inhabitant in this worldview. They do not have dominion. They're a cancer. They're a tumor on the planet. So in the old environmental movements, there was an emphasis on rescuing the planet for the benefit of humanity. Now it's been flipped. Hmm. Now we want to lower the human population for the benefit of the planet itself. So the inhabit the, the habitat has been divinized mm-hmm. and the inhabitants have been uh, labeled as the problem. And this is what we 
we're pushing back against. And of course, you know, in, in one of my lectures today, we talked all about the materialistic worldview, the new Ten Commandments that they've come up with at Sinai to speak to our responsibility to the planet, all, all these sorts of things. I won't rehash my, my whole lecture, but there's a, there's a sinister, demonic action plan attached to the broader climate agenda. Climate issues can be fixed by good, robust understanding of stewardship, but that is not the direction that this is taking, and it's very dangerous, and it's going to actually destroy lives uh, increasingly in the long run. Mm-hmm. You're, uh, you used the word habitat there, and it just made me think of the analogy that you know, if you've got, if you've got a, a hole in the floor at your house, you know, rather than fixing the floor, you're talking about an approach that says, all right, two of the kids have got to go. <laughs> That's a good analogy. We don't want them falling in the hole, so instead of fixing the hole, we execute our children, which is actually literally what is going on. That's right. I believe it's March yeah. of next year where the MAID bill in Canada, the medical assistance in dying, will start to be applied to children. We This is all an attempt to reduce the burden on the taxpayer for social health care. And it's also an attempt to reduce the population, just like under the stay home, stay safe rhetoric, which was all cloaked mm. in the garb of moral language. It's like the right thing to do now is to bump yourself off. The right thing to do now is to reduce the number of children you have. So it, it isn't it isn't a solutions-oriented approach really at all. Uh, there are fixes that can be made to ra- radically increase the global population. I've done a little bit of studying on this myself. I've commented on it in other podcasts, my Leadership Now podcast. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of myths surrounding the climate agenda that need to be addressed, but more fundamental than that, there's a lot of religious garb, a lot of religious ideology that's really tangling things up and, and making things quite messy and chaotic. Mm-hmm. And it, it also it says a lot about our idea of God for for Christians who who would uh, would buy into such such rhetoric, professing Christians. What does that say about our? We just we just finished singing. Uh, this is my Father's world. Do we do we believe that He is not a provident Father who who has given us a, a world rich in resources that will be able to sustain us? You know, it would appear that way because in Genesis chapter 8, we have a locked-down promise from God that as long as the earth endures, we're not going to worry about springtime and harvest, fall and, fall and winter. That that will continue on till the end. Mm-hmm. In the Noahic flood, we're promised God is not going to devastate the world through a global um, flood. In, in Psalm 65, there's a beautiful description of God watering the, the earth and providing our resources. So God is a provisionary God. And when we surrender ourselves to him in faith and allow him to lovingly and benevolently lead us, we will be blessed by him, not just in the eternal kingdom, but in the here and now. And this is not a health, wealth, and prosperity, blab it and grab it kind of gospel, Mm -hmm. but God's general plan, God's proverbial plan for us is when we obey, we are blessed not just in the eternal kingdom, but in the here and now. And this is why we pray even in the Lord's Prayer that the Lord would provide our daily bread. Why pray that if you don't believe that? So obviously there are pockets within human society where people are incredibly destructive and ruin the resources, while the solution to that is not population reduction. 
The solution to that is not bumping yourself off early through euthanasia. The solution to that is a robust theology of biblical stewardship. That fixes it. Now, fortunately, there's been a lot of increase in that. I think most Christians and non-Christians understand the value of stewarding the environment, but what we're not into is environmentalism, mm-hmm. and we're not into mm-hmm. the divinization of the planet and the vilification of the inhabitants of that planet that God has put here as stewards and dominion, uh, those that would have dominion over the planet. Right. The idea the idea of wealth, the idea of... We've, we spoke, spoke, we use language like resources and provision and abundance when we talk about the created world that God's given us. Um, thing, things like development, things like uh, you know, digging up what, uh, you know, digging up a green belt or something to put, put housing developments. You know, there are, are, I guess the question, are there right ways to go about that or are there are there certain things or certain areas, certain aspects of the created world that uh, that are kind of off limits? Well, hu- human beings are imperfect, and so even in our stewardship in a fallen world, we're going to make mistakes. Mm. There, there will be a measure of abuse, wear and tear, if you will, on the world within which we live. But there are certain principles in Scripture that demonstrate God's care over creation. So, for example, we have the Jubilee Laws under the Old Covenant, where there was periods of time when land would be returned to its original ownerships. That ties more into to, um, uh, economics, God's view of economics, to uh, ensure that land wasn't hoarded um, in certain family groups to the exclusion of others. There were laws in place with regard to letting the land rest. I know even in up till recently, uh, farmers typically understood that, that after so many years of planting soybeans or wheat or corn, you'd let the land lay fallow mm-hmm. for a year or two, or maybe a year, and let the weeds grow up, and then you'd till them under and you start again. Modern farming tends not to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in the county, I observe it. They tend to just dump more fertilizer on it. Um, so there's good ways and bad ways to farm. Uh, God does care for the sparrow. Uh, God sees the sparrow fall. God... Uh, commands the human being to care for his animal, not to be cruel to his animal in the Proverbs. So there are principles in place for stewarding creation well, and it is possible to ruin creation, to ruin aspects of creation, not the entire thing, because God has promised otherwise, but to ruin aspects of, of creation. So when, I mean, my, my specialty is not in civil engineering, but from a common sense perspective, if you're planning out an area for human civilization, yes, you need to provide adequate space for public infrastructure, roads, sewage treatment plants, hospitals, perhaps these sorts of things. And you need to provide suitable area for people to build homes so that their families can thrive and they can have shelter. And then it would be wise to also provide suitable space for um, animal life, for trees, for gardens. One of the things that Dr. Boop brought out in his lecture, which I thought was quite helpful, is in the beginning there was a garden, mm-hmm. and in the end there's a garden city. And that's right. a fascinating thing. And the first gardener was Adam, and the second gardener was Christ, who's mistaken for the gardener in the garden after his resurrection. So there's some interesting analogies in there that speak of God's 
plan for a cultivated environment, a beautiful place for us to dwell. And there's some lessons out of that for how we would manage our own gardens, for how we would design our own properties, our cities, etc. Um, so there's, there needs to be some human ingenuity and creativity, cultivation put into place. You know, here we are sitting in our podcasting room and we look around at all the materials that have been used. There's ceiling tiles and there's lights and there's wires and there's wooden doors and there's fabric sound panels and there's rubber decorations on the wall, rubber panels, and there's paints and there's tables and there's microphones. And these things didn't exist in Eden. Mm -hmm. These are the result Mm -hmm. of centuries of human ingenuity as we've dug things up and cut things down and weaved fabric and developed um, various technological advances, this is this is part of our cultivation. Right. And we can cultivate these material possessions for the good, for the good of ministry and the glory of God, or we could build nuclear bombs out of them and destroy people's lives with them. Yeah. So the it's not it's not that the use of creation, the use of the resources of creation are bad in and of themselves, but it's how we use them. And fortunately from a Christian perspective, when we put God's laws in place and God's boundaries in place, we're able to use the resources that God has provided us for the good and the glory of God, rather than the destruction of our of the habitat, or for um, you know the advancement of a, a humanistic agenda, void of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to look around this room, as you said, and just reflect that all of this came out of the earth. Like we, uh... <laughs> yeah, it, it is an interesting thing. You know, you look at paint. Where did paint come from? Yeah. And where did the, I mean, the, the wood door is kind of more evident, but where did the varnish come from? Uh, who, who's, whose brainwave was it to dig a hole in the ground and extract iron ore and smelt it and be the first to make iron tools? So yeah. it's, it's pretty neat when you think about how human beings have taken their dominion mandate seriously and excavated and extrapolated from the earth the things that we get to enjoy. But again, those can be used for great evil or they can be used for great good. So the solution to any environmental issues that we experience is not the deification of the planet, right? and it's not the exodus of the inhabitants in order to protect the habitat, and it certainly is not the vilification of the habit inhabitants who have been made in the image and likeness of God. It's the education of the inhabitants to obey God's laws in the here and now, so that they can properly steward the environment that God owns and has allowed them to temporarily use. Right. That's uh, that's an excellent summary. And Aaron, I think I'm uh, just going to leave it there. That's a great uh, sort of mic drop moment. Really appreciate you taking the time out from uh, the busy day. It's been a, an excellent day and a really great conference. And thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm also here with Joe Boot, and Joe will be a regular uh, voice, a familiar voice to those of you who are regular listeners. Uh, he's the president and founder of the Ezra Institute and was also one of the key speakers at, at this conference. And Joe, I wanted to, uh, to ask you uh, several of the same questions that uh, we've just gone through with Aaron. Uh, the first one uh, is just a, a broad general question. This theme of environmentalism, uh, and the the act of putting together a conference. Uh, this takes effort, takes resources. Uh, in your case, it takes a, a transatlantic flight. Uh, all to come and and speak on environmentalism. Uh, wh- why was it worth addressing and putting uh, putting that effort in? 
Well, actually, we've been wanting to do this for um, a couple of years now. And uh, those who maybe follow us closely will know that a couple of times in the past 18 months or so, uh, we'd advertised a conference on uh, dealing with this issue of, of, of um, climate change ideology. That's right. And um, because of various restrictions, uh, we couldn't get to it. So today is actually the culmination of a um, couple of years of trying to pull this conference together. Um, and um, we're, uh, we, it's been exciting to be actually, actually be able to do it. And interestingly enough, you know, we've seen our biggest numbers ever um, at a Mission of God conference um, for this particular for this particular topic. And mm -hmm. so um, uh, we're excited that we were able to do it and um, address the address the subject. Why why is it so important? Well, there is for the the Christian who's attentive to Scripture um, the world of difference between uh, biblical stewardship of creation, a Christian idea of of stewardship of of godly care for creation. And the messaging that we are receiving today in our culture um, around a kind of apocalyptic, anthropogenic, that is sort of man-made um, climate crisis, uh, where human beings are thought to be um, contributing to some kind of catastrophic um, destruction of the planet in terms of uh, warming, um, which, of course, for those of us who remember the 1980s, the early 1980s, the late 1970s, there's a certain amount of uh, irony there, because certainly when I was in school at that age, we were being told uh, that um, we were heading into a new global ice age. Uh, that ice age was going to cover much of the earth again in uh, freezing and devastating winters. Uh, that never uh, didn't happen. Um, the nomenclature changed during my high school years to to global warming um, and there was all kinds of um, uh, fear-mongering about the ozone layer uh, and the um, imminent depletion of all of our resources oil coal and so on were all said to be just a few years you know a few decades away from total depletion um, again all false prophecies uh, and now finally the, the language has changed again it's a sort of catch-all phrase um, philosophically, we'd say it's really a tautology, but climate change. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of that being an explainer, it doesn't actually explain anything at all. Climates change. Uh, they always have. Um, but that expression now comes with a certain freight, comes with a certain ideological freight. And that is that increasingly that the human beings are a kind of pathogen, a virus um, on the earth uh, who are uh, destroying the earth and um, that we need a radical, if Al Gore is to believe, we need a martial plan, we need a global martial plan mm -hmm. uh, to um, rein in um, uh, people's behaviors in order to, to stave off um, an imminent um, climate apocalypse. Um, and of course, this is going to be done through the state and through um, international and globalist institutions uh, who are going to lay down the law for uh, human beings and how they are to live and, and conduct themselves and so on. So 
almost every listener will be familiar with that kind of language, with that kind of hyperbole. Um, mm-hmm. And the they'd be familiar with, you know, uh, expressions like um, sustainability, um, which is increasingly just a cloak for a totalitarian view of politics. Um, uh, COP27, um, uh, net zero, Greta Thornburg, all these kinds of um, uh, names and expressions are now familiar to most people because they are heard incessantly in our media. And so the conference was an attempt to get behind some of the rhetoric, some of the some of the um, hyperbole, some of the hysteria, and actually analyze well what is the fundamental belief system here? What what is the ideology that is governing this? Um, how much of this is um, actually about um, scientific observation, and how much of it is philosophical, um, and in particular with a, a political philosophy in mind, a very much a religious agenda, an underlying religious agenda. And so um, since in a certain way we've seen a kind of pivot in the last six months, especially from COVID hysteria, uh, it almost seems like there's a... If you didn't know better, Ryan, it almost would seem coordinated. Uh, that mm. there's a pivot from COVID hysteria to climate hysteria you've got to keep the level of hysteria up and so here in the uk we've got people gluing themselves to the road just stop oil they call themselves you've got people gluing themselves to paintings and art galleries in europe um and uh you've got um the uh sort of well they're almost death cults really um uh, talking about extinction rebellion again these would be names familiar to most people movements that are uh, are, are about um, reversing human civilization and culture, basically. And so the conference was an attempt to get behind some of that and give people some tools to respond. Right. And it's uh, it's interesting and maybe not all that surprising that, uh, that you mention things like COVID hysteria and be, and part of the, part of the reason that that's interesting, uh, based on based on the attendance, uh, as you've mentioned, this is the this is the largest Mission of God conference that we've ever hosted. Uh, based on sheer attendance numbers uh, and based on the uh, the active and engaged question period that uh, that we just experienced, this it's an issue that people feel very acutely. Uh, it's an issue that that affects us in our everyday life and affects how we live and act. And it's effect it it's an issue where we there's a very a very real felt need for clarity as we engage it, and one of the uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you that we didn't uh, we had submitted but we didn't get a chance to get to in the live Q and A. Uh, we've just just lived through two years and some of COVID related lockdowns, and there are calls from activists as well as from people in government who are who are looking at these and saying, hey, we could. Uh, we could sort of schedule rolling lockdowns for to uh, to help fight climate change. Uh, these are these are modest proposals that are being tabled. Um, and the uh, the the question uh, the, out of all of that is, what would be a a Christian a biblical response to a a government a state imposed climate related lockdown? Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah, these are not merely hypothetical either. Uh, back in England, um, I've been reading about a proposed uh, uh, sort of climate um, lockdown related idea in Oxfordshire, where they're talking about limiting the number of times people can drive into given areas or go through certain gates that would give them access to given areas. Um, their number plate would be tied to um, uh, sophisticated technology that's able to, you know, determine how many times you've been in and out of a given area. And these are mm. concrete proposals that are happening in various parts of the West. So these the, these are not far-fetched ideas. And um, given the the evident love of lockdowns that we saw manifest in the Western world these last few years, um, it is uh, it's certainly not unrealistic to think that uh, that in certain places um, and in certain contexts, uh, this might be used as a tool, depending on the degree of hysteria. Mm -hmm. What you have to remember is that um, this is all ultimately about planning. Uh, uh, it's about a, a, an organocracy, if you like, um, where you try and organize. It's the idea of the state being the organ, the, the center of organization uh, and organizing life and planning life. And um, in, but in order for people to accept that, in order for people to accept the the the, the state planned society, and, and uh, we'll perhaps come in a moment to the, the the utopian character of this. But the idea of a of a scientifically planned society, in order for people to swallow that kind of of control uh, and an increasingly totalizing control of their lives, they need to be scared by a perceived threat, and and that's what we saw. Um, during the the COVID uh, lockdowns, was the perception of a terrible threat, um, and that gives an amazing impetus for this scientific planning and for people to uh, have their um, you know, freedoms um, removed uh, and or set aside, and. Um, I think that in, in terms of how a Christian would respond to that kind of proposal, um, essentially, you know, we're getting to the point where the the modern state is wanting to, uh, and in many cases is, taxing the air that you breathe with carbon taxes um, uh, and uh, taxing your, your, uh, your ability to stay warm um in your in your own home mm. um but there's an increasing desire now to tax the idea of movement i mean that's basically what this comes down to uh either you're going to be charged uh to move around or you're going to be told you can't move around in some of these contexts and the christian view response has to be the same um as it was for some during the covid lockdown era uh the that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Mm -hmm. uh, the state does not own the air. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And freedom of movement has been a basic constitutional freedom in almost every Western democracy for for um, in, in living memory. When have you ever heard of the notion um, in the West of um, a denial of uh, freedom of movement? Um, from your own home, uh, to travel within your own country, uh, where you are a citizen, where you live. Uh, 
it's um, it's astonishing. I mean, it was astonishing during the, and it was pointed out by politicians and judges during the COVID lockdown era that um, the, this was a historic, uh, un- unprecedented reversal of basic uh, inherited liberties. Um, and the, the Christian claim has to be that God is sovereign. He's ultimate sovereign. Uh, he is Lord of our persons. He's Lord of our, he's Lord of his church. Um, and um, he's Lord of the land. Uh, and uh, the, um, the notion that the, the, the state could start locking us into our homes uh, in the name of, of its false prophecy about the climate, as though, as though people who struggle to predict the weather from one day to the next are going to be able to predict the end of the world. Right. Um, uh, you know, by some uh, so-called experts computer model, which is wholly dependent on the inputs uh, that are and the presuppositions that are fed into any such model. And we saw the the, the absolute laughability of computer modeling during the, the COVID era. Um, it's not real world data. And, and that's the, 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 the serious mistake people often make with all of this. Um, we, uh, we the, the, those who trust the Lord, um, believe that, as Psalm 148 says, that uh, uh, God is the creator. All of the creation praises him. Uh, he commanded, the psalmist says, and they were created. He set them in position. He's talking about now the sun and the moon and the stars and the heights and the heavens above and the earth beneath, they were created. He set them in position forever and ever. He gave an order that will never pass away. All the sea monsters and ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and cloud, powerful wind that executes his command, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creatures that crawl and flying birds. All of these, according to scripture, under the direct control and command of the living God. And um, that doesn't excuse us of the stewardship that we have to take and the care for creation within the cultural mandate that we are commissioned to have. Uh, But the notion that the world is going to come to an end, that the planet's going to become uninhabitable, that uh, unless we stop flying in 12 years, uh, you know, the sea is going to come in and break all of its boundaries and all these things. These are humanistic and pagan myths. They are they are forms of pagan prophecy, and um, the, the 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 freedom of the Christian individual um, is basic to the Bible, and so mm-hmm. our response would be resistance. Uh, the the response would be resistance to a totalitarian move by the state to lock people in their homes in the name of the weather. Right. Good. I. Uh... I, I could have predicted that uh, that conclusion, but I appreciate the the route you took to uh, to explain it, Joe. The last thing that I wanted to uh, to get from you uh, in, for this interview, you've uh, you've spoken today and you've spoken in the past of, on this uh, this idea of Christ as the gardener, and this is uh, this is not without biblical merit, uh, biblical warrant, but it's not a it's not the first thing. It's not the first metaphor or role that uh, that most Western Christians imagine. You know, we think of Christ the King. We think of Christ the Good Shepherd. 
we we don't uh, often, as we're going through some of these different roles and titles, think of Christ as the gardener. And so, without uh, without giving away every or just rehearsing everything that you've spoken about uh, in your lecture, can you talk a little bit about this theme? Yeah. Well, one of the unique things about the Christian worldview um, in responding to this whole uh, climate alarmism is that there is a, in a certain sense, this is a hijacking and then a perversion of a, of a scriptural mandate uh, to, to be concerned with and to care for and to steward uh, creation in terms of the will and purpose of God. And the, the issue that these alarmists and this modern ideology is wrestling with is the problem of change. Uh, it's the fact that um, climate change, uh, weather changes, resource levels change, populations change, um, uh, fertility changes, demography, in other words, changes. We, we're surrounded by a world of change, um, but at the same time, um, it's a world of constancy. And, and, the, and the, the Christian world and life view gives us a vision of reality that holds in a beautiful harmony, constancy and change. Let me give you an illustration of that. If I look out of my window, let's say, in, um, in, in an office or a church, and, uh, and I see a, a, a familiar oak tree, um, and I, I recognize that throughout the seasons, that oak tree outside of my window is changing. It's changing with the seasons, it's growing, its leaves are changing color and so on and so forth. And yet I am able to identify it as that tree. It's not another tree, it's that oak tree. So despite the change, there is something constant that allows me to identify it. And that is a picture actually of God's creation. There, God's law for creation uh, guarantees constancy that we can recognize and identify the things within God's creation that he has made, um, and that there are things that we are to conserve. So there's a conservation or there's a conserving element within uh, biblical faith given to us at the, at the time of the cultural mandate that, 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 that the, as, as God's gardeners, we were to tend and to keep. Mm -hmm. But there's also the element of ruling and subduing. Um, of bringing out the potentiality of being fruitful and multiplying. So with, it, with Christianity, you have both a, conserv a, conserv a conservative and a progressive element. You have a commission to conserve creation, but you also have a commission to develop it in terms of God's kingdom purposes. So you have both constancy and change. Now, when the this modern ideology looks at the world, what they see is not God's law for creation and therefore constancy. They only see change. They see flux. And in that, they see only danger. Everything's changing and therefore uh, a world that is not under the providence and sovereignty of the gardener, the great gardener, the Lord Jesus Christ, a world that's not tended uh, and kept by him ultimately is a world of total flux, of total change without any form of law for creation. And therefore, it's a world threatening to crush us. And therefore, everything around us seems to be then the weather's threatening. Changes in resources is threatening. Changes in populations is threatening. Everything is then seen as a total threat to the life of human beings. There's no rest in the providence of God or the sovereignty of God. And so uh, 
that's the dynamic that we're dealing with. But when you think about gardening itself and you think about any garden, you see these elements of both constancy and change. Uh, it's that it's it's your garden. It has given shrubs and bushes and trees within it. Um, and it it's changing. And yet there is a constancy about it that enables you to recognize it as your garden, not another garden. Uh, and um, what we have this beautiful picture of in scripture is that at the beginning of creation, to, to, the, and it really depicts this reality of constancy and change, God himself, and of course, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, that living word is the Lord Jesus Christ. He planted the garden in Eden. The Lord, the Lord planted that garden. It wasn't actually planted by Adam. Mm -hmm. It was to be tended and kept by Adam. But the original gardener, the original one who planted that garden was God the Son, the living word. And so there he was in that garden as well. And we're told in scripture that he walked with our first parents in the cool of the day. So the gardener was with his vicegerents, his vice regents in the garden, teaching them to be gardeners, uh, teaching them to rule and subdue, teaching them uh, what it means to turn creation into a God glorifying culture. And they walked in fellowship with God. Uh, uh, in uninterrupted fellowship. And that's, that, that's the beauty of that original picture of the Edenic garden scene, planted by the first great gardener, tended by us. But they forfeited that garden. Then you see the calling of Abraham in scripture as the Lord uh, calls Abraham and promises him a, a land, in a certain sense, a very large garden that's flowing with milk and honey. And to flow with milk and honey meant it must have been a, a, an area that had a, a wonderful biodiversity that was in a, an, a, a wonderful harmony with cattle, with the bees, right. all the pollination that was going on. And so they were promised and given by the Lord again. The great gardener gave them the garden of Canaan flowing with milk and honey where they could serve as a kingdom of priests and to extend the kingdom of God. But as we know, that the... the Israelites, the Jews, forfeited that garden as well in Canaan. Um, and then the, 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 the great gardener himself, the incarnate son, arrives in history. And there's a number of gardens that appear in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, uh, in the New Testament. The first one um, is the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, um, where... He is uh, in prayer um, before going to the cross, before he goes to um, basically bring about the restoration, do, do all that was necessary for the restoration of creation. Paradise lost, that, that garden to paradise regained. Before going to the cross, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he prayed and he wept and he sweat. Uh, he sweat drops of not just sweat, but drops of blood. It was mm -hmm. where the, where the disciples, uh, you know, kept falling asleep, and they left the gardener alone again in his garden, just as we left him alone in the Garden of Eden. The disciples left the great gardener alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, where, as the true Adam, the last Adam, as the great gardener, he wrestled with what was in front of him for the restoration 
of all creation. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, the Lord Jesus goes to the cross and he is buried um, in a garden tomb. And, and this is the, 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 this amazing moment where um, he's buried there. But of course, the women come back on the Sunday morning um, to care for the, what they believe was going to be care for the body, to visit the, to, to visit the garden tomb and um, discover that the stone has been rolled away. And <clears throat> there's a very, very interesting moment where um, Mary confuses, or if we can say that, perhaps we can't, uh, but it's there implied in the text. In one sense, she confuses the Lord Jesus Christ with the gardener of that garden tomb. Mm. So that garden tomb was, was tended by a gardener. But when she encountered the risen Lord in the, uh, the garden tomb, she mistook him for the gardener. Now, how do you mistake somebody for a gardener? Um, how do you, should we say, assume that the person you've just seen or met is, the, is a gardener? Well, um, in Canada or in the UK, it would be probably because they've got their welly boots on um, or uh, depending on the season of the year, and they're out in the garden with a shovel uh, or a trowel and a fork or a rake, and they are tending the garden. And mm -hmm. we have this amazing the thought that the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ was there in that garden tomb, gardening, you know, caring for flower beds or pruning trees. We don't know what he was doing, but he was tending that garden so that he was confused for the gardener. But of course, in a very important sense, he wasn't confused at all. Christ is the great gardener. He is the one who is restoring creation. He's the one who planted the garden in Eden. He's the one who is restoring the garden. And now he gives, gives us again, renews us in that task of turning his creation into a God-glorifying culture. And that includes stewardship in every area, including uh, stewardship of the oceans. You know, we should be concerned about plastics in the oceans. Stewardship of rivers and the cleanness of our rivers and waters uh, stewardship of our resources, you know, um, replanting trees that are that are felled for wood and so on. There's been a huge efforts actually in, in that regard um, <clears throat> across North America, especially, but around the world, massive reforestation. So proper stewardship is really important. And so when people hear opposition to the radical environmental movement from us and from other uh, thinking Christians, they shouldn't assume that we're against creation care, uh, good stewardship. That's a biblical mandate, and it's one that evangelicals in particular have taken very seriously. When you look at organizations that were set up for the care of um, prevention of cruelty to animals or for the protection of birds or humane societies, invariably these came out of the, the Victorian era and were started by evangelical Christians. We have the biggest claim to not only obeying uh being concerned to obey God's cultural mandate, but to have having implemented that um, culturally. Uh, so we're not called to rape and pillage the earth. We're called to care and steward. But that does not mean this ideology, a utopian ideology of ushering in an unchanging order of so-called sustainability, of zero population growth, zero 
uh, economic growth, uh, um, basically reducing people to zeros in a totally planned society, that's hell on earth. That's not stewardship. Um, and so uh, we, we need to attune ourselves to detecting uh, this false ideology that, that tries to bastardize, to ape the Christian mandate to care for creation and turn it into a utopian ideology that wants to turn human beings into a zero, destroy human culture and civilization, and uh, have people living on subsistence and in poverty with maybe just 500 million people on the earth. One, one of the things that, uh, that we also say pretty regularly here at, uh, at the Ezra Institute that I think uh, applies is that believers and unbelievers are, are, not, are often not doing different things, but doing the same things differently. And I'm right. just thinking how th this would apply to the believer and the unbeliever picking up trash on the side of the road. You know, is this uh, is this because the earth is our home and we have a responsibility to take care for it, or is it because man is a cancer and a parasite, and so we need to protect our mother earth? That's right, and we know that uh, you know places that are left to themselves turn into a wilderness. Uh, they right. are less productive. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, they uh, they don't um, bring a, div a biodiversity uh, to an area. Um, unless there is some clearing of forests, um, you get tear away terrible forest fires um, and the forest floor will be completely dead if there's no clearings. So um, improving habitat is um, really important. If you don't graze animals on, on land, you get the um, on certain forms of land anyway, you get mm. the terrible uh, effect of desertification where land is not aerated. It can't retain moisture. Uh, and and then you get new desert areas. And there is a major problem with desertification um, across the globe today where land is not being properly cared for. Uh, right. We want um, uh, clean drinking water. So we're not tipping chemicals into our into our into our rivers. We want to preserve uh, and care for the oceans by not dumping plastics. We need to think through the kind of technologies that we're using so that we so that we design things and make things the way that God has uh, designed things, which is if you're only going to use it for two minutes or five minutes, uh, it needs to be something that, like a, a piece of fruit, will um, degrade quickly. Um, uh, you know, drinking, for example, as we often do, you know, uh, in one minute, uh, a bottle of, of water out of a plastic bottle that takes um, decades and decades to degrade. You know, we need to think through how we design things. You know, what, what technology can we employ that allows us to design things and make things in the way that the maker has designed and made things. These are all part of the cultural mandate and the cultural task. So caring for creation is really important. We should be engaged with that. We should be responsible for everything that surrounds us and be concerned for it. Um, regarding human beings as, you see, human beings in that view, in the cultural mandate, are the solution. That's right. Human beings yeah. are, the, are the answer uh, yeah. In this ideology of, of climate change, of sustainability, of zero, uh, the zero-sum game, human beings are a cancer, they're a virus, they're destroying the earth, but that's not true. The, the garden needed the garden, a place within it, to tend it, to keep it, to, to make it fruitful. That's what creation requires. We need more human beings, not less. And with more yeah. human beings, more minds applying themselves to 
the care of creation and the development of new technologies that will help us to do that even more effectively than we've done it in the last 50 years. Right. It's uh, it's really interesting. Uh, the the prophet Isaiah talks about uh, the land, you know, the land being uh, abandoned and desolate when uh, when pe- right. the people are carried off into exile. And what, now that there's no no one there to tend and keep the land, he said it's be, going to become a haunt of jackals. It's going to become a desolation. That's right. Well, think about uh, paradise itself. Without people, it was no longer paradise. That's right. You don't hear, yeah. hear anything of that's, Eden. It's a very good point. After the expulsion of our first parents, uh, once they're expelled, it's no longer a paradise. You, you never hear of it again mm-hmm. um, in the scriptures. And, uh, you know, paradise, just as the Lord says, our Lord Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Creation was made for man, not not the, not the man for the biosphere. And so we're mm-hmm. kind of in danger of inverting the cultural mandate to say that um, uh, that the, um, the, the biosphere itself is going to have dominion over us rather than us have dominion over the biosphere. And, uh, right. That's one of the reasons you can see this sort of satanic counterfeit involved here that's so anti-human. Joe, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for for being here. Uh, it's been a really good conference. It's been great to uh, to be in Windsor to uh, to be together uh, with uh, with Aaron and with uh, Andre Schutten, our other fellow who was speaking today. And for all of you who are listening, this uh, these lectures from the conference they'll be online shortly on the Ezra Learning Portal, which we are anticipating getting uh, getting online again uh, very shortly. Oh, I should I should mention as well. Uh, going forward, uh, one of the things that uh, that we want to do uh, here with the podcast and connected to Ezra Press, our resource store, is a book of the month club. And what uh, what this is is there's going to be a book that uh, that we make available at a special discount all month. It'll be tied to and related to the themes and the seasons and the things that uh, that we are addressing and dealing with at the Institute. This month for December and for January, that book is The Heidelberg Diary by our, our fellow Willem Awanel. And this is a 365-day daily devotional uh, related to and based on and following the uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Heidelberg Catechism, for those of you who don't know, well, you're going to have to get the book. But it's a it's an early uh, catechism designed for teaching the basics of Reformed doctrine to uh, to children and to new converts, and it's uh, it's just a a rich and warm and uh, and robust. Introduction to Christian doctrine, as well as the uh, the care and concern and love that God has for His people. So that that is on sale uh, all this month and all next month. Those months are December and January for those who might be listening to you, to it later. Uh, and you can get that at Ezra Press. We'll give a leave a link in the description. Well, Joe, thanks again for being here. This has been a great conversation, and we'll talk to you soon. God bless. Great. 